Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this afternoon's Keeping Hope Alive event. My name is Dr. Tracy Lassiter, and I'm an assistant professor of English here at the University of New Mexico Gallup. We're proud today to host this event, which is bringing together not only members of our campus and local community, but friends from across the country who are logging in from places such as Texas and California, even Indiana and Virginia. So thank you for joining us today and welcome to UNM Gallup. We're very pleased with today's turnout and while we credit that mostly to our guest, Jimmy Santiago Baca and his reputation, we couldn't have had the attendance today without the efforts of several people here on our campus. I would like to thank Lee Lam, our senior public relations specialist for putting together the wonderful advertising materials you've seen about Jimmy. Lee's hard work at writing our promotional material and seeing that it ran in our local press helped bring many of you here today. Notably, his office is donating some UNM Gallup items to be raffled off a little later in this program. I'd also like to thank Carmen Wellborn, our senior web designer, for her work in establishing the web information and registration site, uh, and also for promoting this event through our university social media outlets. This event also had the support of our campus's Ollinger Library and its director, Cecilia Stafford. Uh, we also had support from our Faculty Assembly's Library Committee. Finally, funding for Jimmy's presentation came from our campus's mini-grant committee. So I thank all of my colleagues for their assistance in providing this program to our community. Finally, I would also like to thank Lisa Neal, the marketing director of the Museum of New, York, New Mexico Press, who first reached out to me about this opportunity and has worked with me for almost a year to bring this event to fruition. Her office donated copies of Jimmy's book that also will be included in today's raffle. As you can see, it takes a concerted effort to bring about an event like this but we at UNM Gallup feel presentations like this enrich the college experience for our students and allow us a chance to give something back to our local community who support us. If you've read anything about our guest's biography, then you know that giving back to the community is very much in the spirit of what he does too. Jimmy Santiago Baca is an award-winning poet, writer, and educator. He has published 18 books, and I understand a new novel is coming out soon. He's won the esteemed Pushcart Prize, which is known as the most honored literary project in America. He promotes literacy efforts and writing workshops for adults and youth alike, visits prison and juvenile fender facilities, organizes community bookmobiles, and so much more. A brief excerpt from Laughing in the Light signals Jimmy's beliefs at a moment in our global and national history where we need to hear hopeful, helpful things. He says, I think that amongst ourselves, we can straighten this mess out. I have met amazing individuals on my journey, committed, sincere, compassionate, smart as the Dickens who solve problems. And there are many of us. And if we work together, we can do this. What joins us together is far more stronger and relevant than what divides us. I have it on good authority that Jimmy loves Gallup. And from today's turnout, 
It seems Gallup loves Jimmy too. Without further ado then, please welcome Jimmy Santiago Baca. Thank you very much. Uh, Ms. Lasseter is correct. Uh, I do I do like Gallup. And uh, in fact, I have relatives there. I have uh, uh, my, my brother married this Danae woman there and uh, had a beautiful young daughter who uh, now living here and doing well. She's prospering, uh, going to nursing school, I believe. So, and besides that, my connection there is you have some really good poets there. You have some great, great people there. The librarians there, Betty Martin and the rest of them are just phenomenal. All the people at the library there are great. And, um, uh, and the students, most of all. When I, when I went through your college last time, some of the students' questions and uh, their, uh, their engagement with literature and stuff just blew me away. I mean, there's no doubt, no doubt. Um, whatever you decide to try there as a student, uh, whether it be writing or poetry or engineering or medicine, you're going to knock it out of the ballpark. There's no doubt. You have this, this gift out there, whether it's from the red clay or the wall, I don't know. You've got it. So keep, keep it, keep keeping it. <clears throat> I wanted to open up this session really quick, if you don't mind, with a good friend of mine. His name is Jaime Chavez, and he's been working um, a lot in the past with the Diné people to, to keep their water uh, potable. So it's not, keep all the corporations out from poisoning it. And he's been working in a lot of different ways that I really can't enumerate. I've known him for many, many, many years. He's a great poet. He's a, he, he does amazing songs on his flute and stuff. So uh, Jaime Chavez, I want to introduce you to all these folks here in Gallup. Uh, uh, if you don't mind opening up for me, I'd really appreciate it. You might say a little bit about yourself. I don't, it's up to you. Yeah, Jimmy was right. Uh, well, first of all, it's a beautiful day, and uh, we want to uh, um, remember our ancestors on this day. And um, he's asked me to open up uh, with a uh, with a poem, prayer, a prayer poem. I'll do that in a minute. But yeah, with regard to uh, the land and the people and uh, the Diné people, and uh, yeah, the Zuni people and the Pueblos, uh, in terms of uh, protecting uh, Zuni Salt Lake, uh, you all probably remember that, uh, the fra last fragile wilds in New Mexico, uh, where um, a major coal company, uh, well, actually SRP, um, wanted to extract coal, and uh, we had to uh, sideline that operation uh, because um, it would have destroyed the water. And as we know, we cannot talk about the land if we don't talk about the water. With that, I think today uh, being a very beautiful day and uh, the students uh, assembled and, uh, yeah, we're all part of the same uh, UNM alma mater. That's kind of uh, cool. Uh, but, uh, yes, I'm a, I'm a native New Mexican of uh, Yaqui and also of uh, Tlaxcalteca people from the south and uh, want to open with this prayer uh, to the people of the land. Mm -hmm. 
rezo, prayer. I pray that we have brought many ingredients to the table, amaranth, corn, beans, and squash, carrots, peas, and flowers, collard greens and sweet potatoes, a cauldron of hope, a vision of change. It is time to seize the moment, stand up for Mother Earth, Nonantzin. Bring the best of yourself to the table. Together, the seeds began to germinate, change form, point to the sky, a trickle of water on the ground. The acequia, el Rio Grande, is enough for me, gently placing seeds in the ground. It is time for the people of the land and the water to stand up for what is right to right the wrong. Watch our prayers rise from the skirt of the mountain to the eagle flying where anything is possible. We can walk together in beauty on this journey, Nishone, call for rain with the spirit of our ancestors all together. The council of the fire is being lit, a slow blaze for life and humanity on the road together. Tu eres mi otro yo. You are my other self together. Companion planting the horizon, listening to the water flow. Thank you, Jaime. I, I don't know why, but I just love the way you open things up. I'm, I'm taking you with me all over New York, LA, Seattle, Chicago. You're going with me, buddy. Just <clears> like <throat> a can of sardines. <laughs> hey, uh, Jaime, if you stay on, and I hope you do, but I understand if you don't, because I know you're traveling. Literally, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to boogie and uh, thank you uh, because uh, yeah, I'm on the road uh, on the on the journey. Uh, but uh, it was beautiful to come together with you all today, and uh, really, uh, um, I hope uh, with everybody who's on the line, if there's 30 or 50 of you or however many you are, that uh, you really blossom forward with uh, literature and with poetry and uh, and 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 telling it like it is in this time now. Okay. We can't say post-COVID, but we do know that we need to continue to respect our life ways and our relationships and uh, move forward uh, in with, with what we got. Yeah, that's beautiful, Jaime. Can I ask you a question? Did, of course. Did you do all of this from inside your car? Yeah, believe it or not, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm between, I'm between the freeway and the railroad tracks. Huh? So Jimmy said no tech. He said no technology, you know, but <laughs> that's great. That's yeah. great. I, I love the fact that you can just pull over and 
and uh, you know, do a request I have for you on the go. Well, good luck and take care. Take care in Mexico. You know, take care Thank of yourself. Thank you so much, and uh, it was it was it was an honor. And uh, yeah, it sounds like uh, all you good folks are ready to uh, to get it on. Yeah. Okay. Listen. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, okay, Leslie. Uh, I mean, Miss Lasseter, do you, you want me to start? With, uh, what would you like to do? Go ahead and begin your your reading. I'm just here to facilitate uh, whenever you have the breaks for the questions. So whenever yeah, we'll, you do that, we'll give us uh, a high sign. Yeah, we'll go back and forth. Let's see. Uh, um, all right, you guys, uh, I hope that the ones, that, the people I'm talking to have read some of my work. I hope you have. There's a lot of good, uh, I write for us. And I'm the kind of writer that, um, there are writers, I don't know how to describe them. Um, there are writers uh, like, you have, you know, there's just a lot of different writers. I happen to be one of those who recently has become somewhat intolerable of, of, of injustice and intolerable of uh, lack of medicine and uh, uh, racism and addiction. And so I've, I've been writing a little bit, calling, calling, uh, calling out the powers that be and putting them up against the fence and telling them, you know, I'm not one of these writers that go along. Yes, sir. No, sir. No, 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 no. I don't do that. Uh, um, I'm provocative, defiant, challenging, that sort of thing, because I, I don't think that we can, I don't think we're, we're, I don't think we're, we're in a place right now where we can just say, oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah, okay, oh, yeah, enough of that, oh, yeah, okay stuff. It's not okay. And forget about this, oh, yeah stuff, you know? Um, so let me just start, okay? Uh, I have uh, some of these things I was reading last night. Um, here we go. Um, I didn't even go through this. Last night I read it, and I was like, um, I was reading to a bunch of prisoners in a, in a in a Nevada prison. Um, but let me just start with this. It's called the Burke Blues. You know, when you get to Albuquerque, Albuquerque is the official name. But for the longest time, us Chicanos have been calling it Burke forever. And uh, uh, it's become mainstream sort of now. Writers are writing Burke and everyone's calling it Burke. Anyway, so uh, here goes called Burke Blues, all right? I never... In a million years, I could never in a million years say 15 years ago, imagine how my life might have unfolded. It's miraculous, a walk over the fire and water without burning or drowning. Time is like one of those tractors that come out after a blizzard. You can hear the grater with its long blade roaring in the street below your bedroom window, scraping away the flaked blessing, almost like Christmas, almost transporting us back to a time when life held promise of magical outcomes. But then we wake and dress and come out and find the snow banged high, 
all curb dirty and grainy and lumpy, almost gruesome in its brooding imposition. Death is how we experience time. It piles up. It comes so beautiful. Each morning and evening through school and lovers and jobs, shopping and new acquaintances, everything on initial contact seems to bear good news, pushing us out of our temporary paralysis of boredom, giving us hope that when we turn the doorknob of our apartment or house and go out, something special is going to happen today. And then at the day's end, we lean forward in our coats and sweaters and we trudge down the street back to our home or apartment, gripped by the same despair and hoping that maybe tomorrow, maybe tomorrow will be the day, will be our day. The snow falls the way a good story or poem starts out. One that reminds us of our mothers sitting in our childhood beds and reading fairy tales to us. That's how the snow falls. But slowly after she leaves the room, after mother closes the door, the silence returns and a coldness sets in and chills the window panes. And the story gets scary. And I find myself thinking, trying not to fall asleep. I get up and I part the curtains. The night glistens with a thin layer of ice. My breath frosting the glass. But the stars burn bright and I smile. God, I realize, has left the lights on and I fall easily into dreaming. Isn't that cool? <laughs> the way language works. Okay, look, here we go. We're going to do another one really quick. Because if I talk, I get myself in trouble. Okay, because I really, oh boy, you talk about a guy who does not like authority. Woo but I would be great in the Diné culture because I've often, always, ever, ever respected women. And women, it's a matriarchal kind of society, right? Where the women kind of run the show. God, I would love that. Instead of out here, you got a bunch of white guys running around thinking they know something when they're like the dumbest people that ever walked. What are they called? Bilaganas? They call them Bilaganas or something, right? Anyway, I mean, look at the last president we had. Oh, my God. Run. Get on your bicycle and go. Get away from that dude. Thank God the voters voted him out. Okay. This one's called caught up. When somebody's really in a bad way, say you meet a friend and the guy's been smoking too much meth, he got caught up. Say you, some a guy's having an affair on his wife, he's caught up. Anytime you get caught up, it's not a good thing. That means that the momentum of the circumstances that you're in, you've lost control of it, and they're now overwhelming you. You're getting caught up. Don't get caught up. A lot has changed since the Rodney King days. That's that black dude who got beat up by the cops in L.A. I remember flying over those riots in South Central and seeing bonfires studying the night, seeing chaos in the street below, wondering if anyone had thought of shooting down our plane. 
Lots has changed since those days. When I was making blood in, blood out in Los Angeles, our society morphed into an, after the filming recently, our society morphed into an ugly, greedy thing with lines drawn between so many factions. You can't even count the enemies anymore. But one phenomenon for sure has reared its ugly head and that's domestic terrorism. Who would have dreamed in their wildest nightmare that white supremacists would walk into churches or mosques, elementary schools, high schools, dance clubs, theaters, malls, peaceful elementary schools, demonstrations, murdering kids and women indiscriminately, and that we'd have a president who condoned it. The At Me Too movement, Oxycontin epidemic, church scandals, child predators disguised as CEOs, once unthinkable are now commonplace. Even some writers, I guess feeling privileged by successful book sales and awards, have turned their once subtle presentations into a grubby literary mosh pit. There's a lot more cursing with writers. And even the prima donnas get in on the free-for-all. Writers who bask in institutional acceptance are on stage now cursing and presenting obscene poems to the audience as if they'd grown up in an alley with a bunch of glue snippers. So many back and forth accusations now. Everyone's just accusing everybody of everything. Radio talk show hosts promote a grocery store of hate brands. They'll find someone for you to hate if you listen five minutes. It's like every media platform is a soapbox and preaching opposition is the new religion and a cure for life's meaninglessness. Some even scream in an almost daily bliss, numbing our faculties of discretion and propriety. Our decline in morals and ethics seems to have no limit. We've gotten ugly and evil and uncaring in politics. Even in sports, people are punching each other in the face on the basketball court. In social media, they're screaming at each other on TV. Everybody's become unhinged. Everybody is getting caught up. Okay, I'll stop there. That's, uh, that's another part of the essay. Um, let me read one more and then we can ask questions, okay? Okay, now here's a here's one here's one you probably want to write. You we probably want to. I know that a lot of you love Blood In Blood Out. It's got 11 million followers now. Can you believe that? 11 million. Wow. I get invited all over the world. I get invited to all these different countries because they're seeing they they're asking me to come in as the writer of Blood In Blood Out. I never thought for a day when I wrote that that. It would ever, you know, do anything, but yeah, it's doing it. Okay, 20 years now, that's when we made it, about 20 years ago. Okay, uh, here's one called The Poets We Need. I was never trained in the traditional sense to be a poet. No creative writing classes, no poetry classes, no writing colonies, no writer's retreats. And although I wish I had some of those experiences, believe me, I love writing retreats. I wish I had some of those experiences. I repeat, I'm as, I'm as much a part of the literati as the Chicano chili grower in the South Valley. And you can probably tell as much with a cursory glance at my desk. I mean, my office, it's total chaos, books everywhere. My office, if that's what you want to call it, stretching the meaning of the term, it's actually half bedroom, half fireplace, half wood floor, 
French doors, two windows, one north, the other side. My desk is cluttered. A modest wooden table with no drawers. Papers from two years ago stacked up high. Something you can pick up as easily at a yard sale for two bucks. To the left is a stack of books I finished reading and keep handy to revisit certain passages I highlighted. Slide of hand literary techniques and stylistic aerial maneuvers. A box of tissues and letters from prisoners I want to reply to but I haven't had time. Some are months old, maybe years old. Other letters from publishers and editors. More books unread. A notepad for jotting down ideas quickly. Three various containers stuffed with pens, sharpies, highlighters. A sprinkler head with directions for spray adjustment. A Rubik's cube I never had the guts to try. And sitting on top of it, a small dark statue of Lord Ganesh. A stack of folders with work I'm going to get to. A palm-sized ceramic bowl with eyeglass cloth I use to clean my reading spectacles. Eyeglasses for distance. Coffee cup, shirt pocket notebook. On the whole, an assemblage of pretty much useless debris that to the uninformed observer would should be best swept into the trash can. So there's my desk, folks. <laughs> All right, listen, let's open this up to some questions. Uh, and then I'll read again if you'd like. Um, uh, any questions? Uh, I think um, I'm going to have Miss um, Lassiter uh, be the intermediary, okay? Sure. Um, Bill Newman has a question in the chat about how do we not get caught up? Oh. Well, you know, I think that I think how do you not get caught up? Um, I think that's um, yeah. It's gonna sound really dumb. Uh, I'm an orphan. Uh, my parents died horrible deaths. You can read it in that bestseller book of mine called "A Place to Stand," or the, or the movie they made called "A Place to Stand." Uh, number one, and this is the big, 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 big one. You just got to stay away from people doing hard drugs. That's number one for people like us. Because when you can't pay the bills, when you're having a hard time relating in a really healthy way with people you love and love, love, love you, when you don't have any money, when things keep breaking down and you ain't got no money to repair them, when you try to fill out applications and this and that and nothing ever comes through, it's hard emotionally to just keep on looking at despair in the face. And lots of people got to do drugs just for a break. Just give me a break. But that's the worst thing you could do. That's the worst thing. It fixes nothing. It spirals you deeper into this hole. Cocaine for a second. It's like, yeah, that's cool. Matt puts you up there thinking, oh, everything's cool now, you know? I'm not gonna say anything about weed because for many, many, many people it's medicinal. A lot of people smoke it for medicine. But the hard drugs are really bad. So how do you get not caught up? Stay out of there, out of the hard drug cabinet. And, number and definitely stay out of the pharmaceuticals. Those pharmaceuticals, the pharmacies are out to kill you. Just the way they gave you beer and whiskey and wine, they're giving you pharmaceutical pills. Now don't, let their own kids take them, not you. Let them give that to their own people. 
And number two, you got to go through education as much as you may think it's really, really hard and impossible. You'll get to the end of it. You'll do it. But you got to stay there in school. You got to get educated. Okay, that's number two. Number three. Um, you know, I was in, I was institutionalized for 25 years. I went to the orphanage with about, we had about 300 Dene kids there. I went to, uh, you guys had the Indian school across the street from us. Um, I went to the detention center, to gladiator school, to county jail, to prison. And I never learned that, I always thought that being a tough guy was the answer to all my, all my conflicts. I would fight anybody, anywhere. End of story. You want to fight? Let's fight. Because that's what I was taught. But that was the worst thing I could have ever done to try to deal with a conflict because it taught me not to use my words. It taught me that my feelings don't matter. And I got to tell you, man, everything I ever got into that was messed up was because I couldn't express my feelings because I couldn't talk to somebody and tell them, hey, look, dude, this is what you're doing that's bothering me and talk to the person. So. I got caught up a lot because I couldn't express my feelings. So a way of not getting caught up, the third thing is to learn how to speak and express yourself. Not in an angry way, and, but you know what I'm saying. You know, don't come home and burn the house down just because you're angry. Um, don't, you know, disrespect the people that, that love you. You know what I'm saying. It's basic stuff you learn as a kid. I never did. Took me a long, long time to learn it. Uh, so those are the three things. Don't get caught up. What's the next question? Bill, you had an opportunity to to chat. Were you okay with Jimmy's answer? Do you want to add anything? Yeah, um, yeah, Jimmy. Uh, I won't talk for a long time here, man. But uh, I, I love your answer. It's a great answer, right? But you know, besides avoiding stuff like bad dope and distractions like that, drinking too much, et cetera. Um, how about just the anger that we feel when we hear pretentious academics and even poets pontificating, but doing nothing really about Ooh. this injustice, okay? Sitting back, enjoying economic privilege and doing nothing to change this dire situation. Um, I've been watching the uh, the murder trial, uh, you know, of uh, George Floyd's murderers, uh, and it, it's all I can do to keep from just screaming and smashing my computer. Um, how do we stay focused? Because, I mean, you do it, man. In your writing, you do it. Is there anything you can do to advise us on how we focus our writing, focus our, our, our talk and our education? And I'll shut up. <laughs> okay. Uh, you don't have to shut up. Um that's okay. Um, well, let me tell you, look, look, you know, one of the things, one of the things about us, you know, for some people, writing doesn't mean the same thing that it means to me. When I'm writing something, it's a declaration from the place 
where God created me. I could I could joke about I'll read you jokes. Um, I can read you stuff, you know, sad things, happy things. Um, it comes from that place. There was a time when I was winning every award you could possibly win. I was turning down offers in Hollywood and offers in New York. But, you know, I could see through it. I could see through it. Now, this is the thing. This is the thing. When a writer gets hyped up and the publishers put hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars behind the book, the book could be trash, could be total trash. And most likely it is because it appeals to the mainstream, to the type of reader that likes the comfort zone. So you take a book like that and you give it to the comfort zone people and they're like, oh, those are the people that ignore the Floyds that get killed by police. As long as you can keep feeding the comfort zone. And there's hundreds of millions of people there who have intergenerational wealth built up where they can buy 20 books a month. That's where the markets want to go. And those are the writers that get hyped up. The writers like Baldwin, Malcolm X, uh, um, people like that were all on the margins. And it was the people, it was the teachers in school who said, this has got nothing to do with our life. Why are we reading this crap about a girl in Chicago playing with her dolls in the backyard while they just killed 20 people last night? The kids who are coming to school are asking, why can't we read about kids who don't eat breakfast because we got no food? Why can't we read have books about fathers who are not there, who are absent in prison? Why can't we read about our mom who just got beat up? We, we need to understand this stuff, but ain't nobody talking. So the next best thing is give me some drugs to numb me. I need to numb myself because this is carrying this kind of contradiction around where the whole world says life is good. Oh, that's a little girl house on Mongo Street. This little thing over here, that little thing over there, this little thing over here. Everybody's doing great. And they come out and they talk all this poetics and all this protest and all this politics. And then they, you see them day after day after day on stages receiving 100,000 here, 100,000 there. But they never once ever talk about George Floyd. They never once talk about Hernandez in Houston, who had his spine broken in three places by the police. He died He died in route to the hospital. They never talk about the Cesaras and the San Quentin brain aneurysms by the dozens from getting beat up. Where are those books? Where's the reality that we know exists? So, they're always gonna be there, okay? Oprah's got too much power. She's gonna pick up the phone and say, hey, I need you to blurb a book. Boom, they all run there. The publishers call Oprah, can you promote this book? Sure, they write her a check, everything's good. Everything is business. If Oprah produces a book that she likes, it's because the publishers made a contract with her. So don't think it's because, oh, this is great. You know, it's, no. When was the last time she ever promoted a book written by a Navajo? Never. Never, or a Chicano, never. I mean, it's that simple, all right? It's just, it's a business. But that doesn't mean that we can ignore 
our own need to sing the beauty of our culture. I've been writing poems in 1978. I wrote a book called Immigrants in Our Own Land that was all about the immigrant situation. All about that. In 1981, I wrote about domestic abuse. I mean, book after book after book, I kept writing. And, and uh, there came a point in time when I backed away from it all and said, no, no more NPRs, no more uh, radio station interviews, no more awards, no more money. No, it's, it's all stopping. I'm not going to do that. I'm walking away. And when I walked away, <clears throat> what you suffer is the absence of attention by the publishers. In my case, they can't because I have too big of a readership. If I publish a book, it immediately sells 100,000 copies, right? Or 50 or whatever it is, right? Um, but what they've done is, is we're not going to let him... Uh, people, I mean, teachers all over the world order, order my books, right? But, but when you have establishments, big establishments, who want to promote poetry, they don't promote my poetry or people like me who talk about injustice. They promote poetry that is, you know what? The blacks are, are beautiful people. They, they got soul. They don't talk about mass incarceration. You know what I'm saying? They don't talk about the way some of the blacks were given syphilis uh, injections of, of syphilis in Mississippi. They don't talk about the injustice of education. None of that. So you have to start from the gate. Stay true to your heart and write and write and write and read and read and read. And no one can stop you from getting your, your voice out into the world. You don't really need the publishers. It's easier. They'll give you a big check. I used to get checks that were six figures. Easy. But there came a time when I said, okay, I've got to start writing from the place where I started. I've got to go back to that place and write in the sense where I believe that writing is sacred. Writing about my children. Writing about the children in Iraq and Iran who are being bombed every day. And you know what? You know what? I got to tell you something. Look, it may piss everybody off this thing that, that this cop killed Floyd. But if you're a brown man, in my case, Chicano, that is commonplace. That's been happening since I was a kid. And every time I told a teacher, excuse me, excuse me. Yeah, a cop came last night and beat my dad up. He was drinking. He didn't do anything, but he came in and beat him up really bad. And he cracked his head and he has, he's in the hospital with a cracked skull. Oh, you're just a troublemaker. Excuse me? Oh, by the way, the cops took my sister out to the Mesa and they did some stuff to her. Oh, be quiet. Don't talk like that. That was everyday stuff to us. And when they kept telling me, don't say that, I'm like, you know what? I don't need this. I'll go write my own books. I'll go write about this. Because obviously you ain't paying attention and you ain't giving me the books to read. So I'm going to go write my own books. And guess what? Over a million copies and counting still. Isn't that cool? 
And that all started one day in 1973 in a prison cell where I was serving time for drug dealing and for having a shootout with the DEA on the border. When the DEA came and said, we're going to kill all these Mexicans. I said, no, not this one, you ain't. And then I wrote about that. They made it into a movie and it became a bestseller. That's what you do with this stuff. You write about your experience. Don't you worry about a thing. The people who read it will know it's the truth. You know what? Just because some writers don't have the courage to stand with you, they would much rather stand with the person who writes the checks. I mean, really, think about it. Think about it. How many of you right now, how many of you right now, if it meant getting your check on Friday so you could pay your mortgage, or stand over here and say something that's, that's going to mean you're not getting your check on Friday. But you're going to say something that's truthful and honest and something that you have to say. 90% of you are going to be quiet because you need that check. See, and the system counts on that. The system counts on that. The system has created a kind of default for anybody who thinks that they're going to be a leader. You better get ready to be a poor leader because they're going to take away the money. Okay? But listen, it's a contradiction because as a writer, that's what you write about. I mean, look, they got enough enough people ignoring police brutality. A, a lot of people are writing about how good the police are. And you know what? I was speeding the other day. I got a place up north by you guys up there. I got a farm up there, beautiful place with a waterfall. It's got a river and it's got everything that's going through it and everything. And I'm speeding late at night and my eyes ain't that good, but I'm speeding, right? I read a lot of books. And sure enough, a reservation cop pulls me over. And I'm like, hey, dude, turn off those, turn off those lights. You're, I can't see already. I can't see the stop sign over here. And you got those lights on, you're blinding me. He said, Oh, don't worry. It's just the way the car comes. I said, well, damn, they give you a car where you can't turn off the lights. So we're talking, right? And and he understood me. He says, you know what? I know, bro. I know. I know how it is. And he says, our cultures, the Chicano Mexican culture and the Navajo culture, we go back 300 years. I took your slaves. I took your people. As, you took my people as slaves. You took our names, we took your names. We go back long, long way. We're not like the white people who came in and just like, da, 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 we want it all, right? The General Kearneys, the Fremonts, the Carltons, the Carsons, all of those, right? Not that. We had this thing going on where you would come and steal all our sheep, and then we'd go steal two of your horses, right? And we did that for 300 years, and then all of a sudden, here comes Manifest Destiny, all these guys marching with cannons and howitzers and stuff, and they were like, you guys, we're going to be your new masters. And, and they try to send you, take going to Canyon de Chile and take you out of there, put you at uh, Bosque Redondo where thousands and thousands of Navajos died. You know, uh, really cruel, cruel stuff happened. Uh, no, 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 we're not that. But we have to write about that stuff. We got to, we got to, we got to, we can't forget that. We can't just say everything's cool. Here, I want to sell, sell you a Navajo sculpture that I made. I want to give you a buffalo uh, so I can make some money. No, you, that's okay. But you got to get, you, you just can't write about how happy it is to be a Native American with white Americans. It, it's, 
There's problems. Write about those problems. Write about them. Don't ignore them. Okay. Okay. Next question. Yeah, this is coming from Claire, and she's a young uh, writer in our audience today. No, I am not very young at all. I teach young students. Oh, I'm sorry. I misunderstood my cue. I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah, I teach sixth graders, and we've read. Um, uh, I am offering this poem. We've read. Um, Wouldn't it be nice if New Year? We've read a couple of your poems, and and I've introduced them to your poetry, and I appreciate it. And I'm trying to maybe inspire them a little bit to write about from, like you said right from where everything started and, um, uh, you know, trying to inspire them about, you know, their own histories, even though they're only 11, 12 year olds, but, you know, just some of that background. Cause yeah, a lot of them come from, um, Latino homes or, or Navajo homes. And, you know, there's some sadness there. Um, so yeah, I just, any inspiration you have for me would be appreciated. <laughs> well, listen, you know what? I, I absolutely adore teachers like you. Uh, the fact that you just show up <laughs> and that you're a woman of, you're, well, they say a woman of color, but the fact that you show up, and I don't like to break down teachers by color because there's so many good white teachers out there. And there's so many good brown, red, black teachers, Asian teachers. They're just, they got a heart. They're, they're like, the, to me, they're like the sacred center of my society. And the teachers take care of our children. I've got five children, by the way. Three, as already, they've gone through college. I've got two more here at home. And believe me, they teach me more about what it is to be a man and a father mm-hmm. uh, than, than any, any highfalutin, you know, mm-hmm. uh, authority figure that, that looms over me, you know. I've trusted too many of those people, and they've, they've betrayed me every step of the way. Oh, you're the Cub Scout leader. Great. Next thing I know, he's trying to molest me, right? No, 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 no. Or I go to the, you know, anyway, I could go on. But the point is this. The point is, um, look, there's certain things we can change, and there's certain things that we can't. I accept the fact that there are certain things I can't change. If a kid has alcoholic parents, I can't change that. But I can darn sure get into the kid's life Mm -hmm. and give that kid an example that I offer myself by role modeling. Yeah. I can bring books to school. I can tell the kid, hey, I read that you want to hear a poem, watch this poem. And I read about a kid who who goes to school and can't talk about what's going on at home. Yeah. I can be there for that kid, but I can't, I don't have the energy of a teacher, but I can do that as a writer. And so I write about that stuff. For instance, peer pressure. Um, um, social media. Yeah. Which is huge. I don't, I have to make room not to ignore those things. In other words, I have to have to be, to be able to have the courage to step in and know that I can change this. Mm-hmm. And I also have to have the other idea that I can't go to this girl's house and tell her father, if you drink that bottle again, I'm going to beat the heck out of you. I can't do that. Mm-hmm. I just have to tell the girl, look, I'm here. We're not all like him. And right. he's probably got a lot of problems, but... Again, 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 I have to go to this one thing. We have to find books that teachers feel comfortable teaching in their class without being threatened by the administration saying, oh, you can't teach that book because we didn't order it through the school. (laughs) Yeah. 
You know, it's like, what are you talking about? No, I wouldn't have bought it with my own darn money. Oh, well, you can't teach that book because we made a deal with the publishers in Boston and we spent $28 million to bring in these books written by some guy in Boston about the Navajos. Give me a break. No, no, no. You go down to the independent bookstore, you go down to a reading list or a library and you find those books that's going to be healthy for those kids. And that's what a really good teacher does. He or she produces healthy kids that love to learn. And that's it in a nutshell. The fact that they'll go out those doors and they'll be wanting and eager to learn. Mm-hmm. As opposed to kids who once they go out that door, they're lost. Yeah. And the first temptation that comes to them is, hey, hey, you want to come over here and have some meth? Let's smoke a little bit of meth. Okay. Those are the kids that get the books that don't have any pertinence to them. When you give a kid a book where it resonates in that kid's life when he walks yeah. out the door, you can't persuade that kid to do harmful things himself. Yeah. Because his mind has been conditioned to love himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in literature, you know what? So many times the, the underneath the underlying current tells us that because we're not white, we don't have as much value. Mm-hmm. That's what it tells you. You know what I'm saying? Or you have the other kind of literature where the Indian becomes a servant, a Ford Indian, you know, where you go around like, yes, yes, no. Let Native Americans be leaders. That's yeah. what they are. They're leaders. Let's see you, outsider, let's see you go out in the desert and live for three months and try to find some water and how to eat. They never always been doing that for 300 years. <laughs> you know, there's a smart, smart people out there, man. Yeah. And not only that, the other thing is, and this is going to sound kind of weird, Claire, but <laughs> it's helped me. Spiritual, you have to be spiritually connected. Mm-hmm. You have to have something in your body that says there's a higher power that helped me get where I'm at. Right. And you have to you have to respect your ancestors. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to respect the people that came before you. Those are all the things that I do when I pray regularly every day. Mm-hmm. I include that in my writer, in my writer uh, character. Okay. Yeah. I, when I walk into the class, I tell kids, oh, God, guess what? God talked to me last night. And they're like, what? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll walk in, hey, Claire, I'll walk in and say, hey, guess what? I'm really, really bummed out. And they'll say, why, Mr. Baca? Well, you know, I always thought Santa Claus was, was uh, I mean, they told me he was this guy with a white beard. And our and our whole guy only has a little chimney. He can't fit through there. <laughs> and I said, well, you know what? That's not, I'm bummed out. But, but guess what? My friend told me this morning. And the kids are like, what? I said, they said that he, he's just this little skinny Indian dude living up in the mountains with some burros. <laughs> and then if you leave some tacos next to the stove, that bato's going to come in. Because he's a little skinny guy. He'll be able to take them tacos. <laughs> and you're going to get all kind of presents. Dude, Santa Claus ain't this guy from way up there. He's a little skinny Indian dude that's living in those mountains right there. And all the kids in the, on the floor sitting around me are like, really? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. And you know what's funny? 20 years later, Claire, I'm pulling into a gas station in Gallup. And it's 4 o'clock in the morning. And my wife is telling me, you can't be doing this stuff for free because I just spent $10,000 giving books out and going to visit people in prison and wherever, right? Right. And I said, I, I said, I know, I know. 
And the guy comes out to put gas in my car and he's wearing a leather, a leather, a leather jacket. And he's got a chain and he looks pretty mean. And he looks at me and he looks at me and I think, oh my God, I hope I didn't do something bad to this guy in a, 20 years ago, <laughs> you know? And he walks up and he goes, and I get the $20 bill to put through the window because it's cold and he tells me, roll your window down. And I roll it down and he says, Are you Mr. Baca? And I'm about to deny it, right? <laughs> and then I say, yes. He says, Santa Claus is a skinny Navajo that lives in the mountains up there, huh? And I'm like, oh my God, dude, you were one of those little kids. He's like, yeah, man, I was a little dude. That's said, cool. That, that was so cool. You see, that's what education does. It integrates itself into the fabric of your own mind if it's healthy and appealing for you. Right. right. Okay. Yeah, that's thank awesome. you. Yeah. Thanks. Hey, if we could do a little bit more of the reading, and then once we come back for that second break, we have some really great questions in the queue that we'll do after the second reading. Is that okay, Jimmy? Yeah, and I'll, I won't talk as long on the next questions because I, I will probably lose my voice. So, it's, by the way, did Antonio ever join us? Do you know if he joined us, Lee? I don't think he was able to, to join us. Oh, boy. Well, okay. Uh, okay, let me just pick up something. Look, here we go. I'm just going to read it random. This book here. Try to get this book, everybody, if you can, because Professor Lassiter and the people at the uh, Museum of New Mexico Press, they really are, they're great. The fact, yeah, Professor Lasser, the fact that, that she's got it and she's, she arranged this thing and besides props to her because she, she, she did a lot of work to get this ready. Uh, this is a good book for us. I think you'll laugh and you'll like it. Anyway, I'm just going to pick up in the middle and read something, okay? I know lots of kids dream of being poets. They write poetry in school. They read Cahil Gabran, the I Ching, the Book of the Dead. They mimic the habits of suicidal poets, drinking and slugging it out in bars, reciting their favorite poets. Even some tattoo their favorite phrases and lines on their skin. Living in the gutter because it's cool, unwashed, begrimed, smelling of street stench, doing all kinds of drugs and willing to ingest almost anything that guarantees a high a crazy out-of-mind and soul trip, something, anything to take them out of their day-to-day middle-class privilege where their parents are standby to help with rent or college. I think such desires are in the blood of almost every kid, but they outgrow the fantasy. They let the rebellious rancor simmer to smoke in the air, and few dare to cross the threshold from this clone-like realm of dinners and movies and parks and dogs to the road that curves into the forest where hell awaits. All of them outgrow it to go on to become stockbrokers, real estate agents, engineers, lawyers. They look back with ghastly embarrassment that they were once willing to spread legs to spend a night with a poet. Some lost their virginity Others lost their lives. Others broke up unhappy marriages. 
with hopes of being a poet, with a poet, their lives would improve, they thought, not be so sad. Many believed they were entering a mysterious sanctum where angels visited the sleepless. One thing that we all agree upon, those were amazing times when we believed in poetry. Times we catch ourselves wistfully daydreaming about. And as miserable and wretched as times were back then, it was better than the polished shoes and the tie and the seven-figure paychecks and the office job we have now. Better than a wife who doesn't love you and kids who only want your money. I'm not a celebrity poet. No merchandise to promote myself. I'm pretty modest when it comes to being ambitious. I'd like a regular situation to have enough money to pay the bills, to have a a job, shelter, the basics for my kids. One of the mishaps to being a poet is that you better sure have discipline because you've got to create your own schedule. You've got to be your own boss. You do what you want when you want, sure. And that ends up meaning you're always doing other things to make time to write, but never actually write because you're sidetracked by chores around the house and stuff that needs to be fixed, you know? So, that little thing there is part of an essay I wrote about why is it that when we're growing up, we love poetry so much? I mean, we, we the first thing that we do as kids in class is write little poems to the girl that we like or the, or the friends that we have. We'll put little notes, those are little poems, and we'll send notes through class, you know? And then all of a sudden, more and more and more, we get away from that. Until when you become an adult, poets are despised. If you tell your father, oh, yeah, I'm going with a poet, your father's going to say, stop it. That, that, that's nowhere. That kid's a loser. Where do we get that idea from that those who practice the most sacred form of literacy are the most demoralized in this society, demonized. Why do we respect, disrespect poetry so much? Wouldn't it be really cool? I mean, wouldn't it be great if we had guys going to prison for stealing poetry books? I mean, standing, imagine standing in front of the judge and the defendant reciting long poems when the judge says, do you have anything to say for yourself? And the young lady goes up there, sure, I got something to say. And she starts to recite all of Shakespeare's plays. Wouldn't that be cool? And imagine, oh my God, imagine if when you met somebody, you could, you could, you could, you could duel each other by, by uh, the way they do with rap now, but do it with poetry. Wouldn't that be cool? And look, Tupac, Snoop, Biggie, all of them, every one of them, all of them started with writing poetry when they were in school. And that's what took them to rap. There's something really beautiful about poetry. So in short, what I'm saying is don't ever leave it behind. If you become really successful as a doctor or something, go to the independent bookstore and buy some poetry books. Believe me, your kids will love you for it and it'll help your relationship. Okay, Professor Lasseter, let's take a break. I think, wait a second. I think Antonio's with us, is he? Yes, yes that's correct. Well, well, you sure took your time. I'm sorry, it took me 30 minutes and two computers to get on. 
<laughs> when we come back, I'm not sure how long the break's going to be, uh, Professor Lasseter, but when we come back, I would like Antonio, uh, he's, a, he's a friend of mine from San Francisco. I just read his memoir, and uh, I wanted him to share a few pages of it. I think I think it I think it would mean something to the listeners. But how do you want to do this, uh, Miss Tracy? Well, we have two questions that we're waiting. One from okay. Andrew, and then the second from Andrea. And okay. then we'll start to wrap things up. So I think maybe after the second question, we could have Antonio do his presentation, and then we also have our raffle. So we want to make sure we leave some time to do that. Okay. Okay. Uh, what's the question, uh, Ms. Tracy? Andrew, is uh, is he queued up, Mr. Lee? Yes. Okay. Uh, uh, I say, uh, uh, Baca, it's an honor to hear your words, and uh, thank you for sharing your, your poetry with us today. Um, yeah, and, and really what I wanted to ask you kind of, you know, Bill, Bill Nevins kind of beat me to it uh, before, but, you know, you mentioned Rodney King previously when you were reading that second poem. And, uh, you know, all of us, our eyes are glued to the TV right now. And we're watching the trial of Derek Chauvin and, you know, the horror that uh, of that day when George Floyd was killed. And, you know, and like you said, there's been, you know, victim after victim after victim. And only these are the victims that are caught in video. Before that, we didn't have video. So, but, you know, I, I want to know in reading your poetry, you know, how do you find hope, I guess, through poetry? What does poetry do with you? And what do you think it, it can do for, you know, for us uh, when we're dealing with these difficult situations? And we still don't know what the verdict, you know, is going to be with this trial. I know, I know it's nightmarish to have to wait because the powers that be have always betrayed us citizens. But... The only, the only consolation that I give myself is that, is that we live in, a, in an existential uh, suspension of sorts. Uh, we live in a time when, when we don't completely understand what happened yesterday and we don't completely believe tomorrow's gonna be okay. It's an existential crevice, sort of an earthquake. And we find ourselves in that earthquake to be the epicenter. We, we find ourselves shaking. We find ourselves fragmenting. We find our society falling apart. We find ourselves no longer capable of, of, of believing that things are gonna be okay. I mean, we've become immune from massacres in, in grade schools. Uh, we're inoculated from Guys walking in and murdering 20,000 people and cops are just running amok, working for the cartels, governments working for the cartels, rogue governments and stuff like that. So we're caught in an existential type of paralysis where the only thing that we can do is try to be true to ourselves in whatever manifestation that may find itself. So if you need to fly to Minneapolis, and be in that crowd protesting, then you need to go there. If you need to sit down in the morning and start crying, literally writing a whole series of weeping poems for the things that you're not capable of doing, but that you wanna do, that I wanna do something about this murder, 
I feel so incapable, so inadequate. And you need to be able to turn to your kids or your friends and with hands out, you're not reaching their hand to give them sustenance. You're reaching because you need help because you're drowning. So we need to start accepting our shame for not being enough and turning that shame into a celebration. Enough hiding it. Enough saying I'm enough. Enough saying that this is going to be okay. Enough saying that, you know what, I don't know what's going to happen. And I'm afraid and I'm ashamed. I wasn't capable of going up to the standard that you put before me, which means getting a job and ignoring injustice. I can't do it. I'm sorry. And so now you can shame me. You can call me a radical, a left winger, whatever you want to do. But from that shame comes such great songs, great poetry. You've seen, you've seen some of these great black writers write from the shame of slavery. You've seen them write from the shame of redlining, and they're, 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 not, they're not willing to live. They don't, you can't live in this neighborhood. It's, it's, so you have to live, you, you have to be able to work in a vacuum without, uh, without relevance. You have to be irrelevant and write to the universe because your spirit is relevant. Even though your mind and your beliefs may not be relevant to the social and judicial mores of the day, your spirit is relevant to the cosmos. And that's where you write from. That's where you wake from. That's where you father from. That's where you love from. Mm. That place. And that power is, believe me, magnetizing. Okay, next question. One more question, and then Antonio, you read. We have some really great questions in the in the Q and A. Um, yep. I mentioned um, Andrea a little while ago, but we do have some really good questions from Delissa, Jeff, and some others. Go. Hopefully, we'll be able to get to them in a little bit. So, Andrea's next. Yeah. I'm not going to answer questions with a long, long-winded one. This, I'm going to hit them sharp and real small. So ask me the questions. Go. Uh, Andrea, are you there? She cannot talk. She's using an older version of Zoom, so you might have to uh, ask. Read hers? Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I have to scroll back up to it. You know, it's kind of cool. You got to write from a place where you have no hope. And actually, that that transfers to Andrea's question, which is, how do you encourage adult learners who went through homelessness, alcoholism, addiction, and racial trauma? You better get yourself a support group quick. That's what I would say to that. And and the one thing you got to do more than anything else, look, I, I'm talking from an experience where I never got a support group because I didn't think I needed one. I was an addict and a drunk every day, thinking that I wasn't, thinking that it was just like eh, putting on a different shirt. <laughs> no, no. If I was smart, I tell my kids I would have done things differently in that department. I would have got support groups. I would have got friends who helped me. I would have learned how to trust people. I would have learned how to open myself up and ask for help. One of the biggest things we can't do, I don't know why, and I admire the hell out of people who do this. 
I, maybe the Diné people are like that too. I don't know. I think they are. We have a hard time asking for help. And we have a hard time giving it without being judgmental. Why can't we just say, yeah, why do we always got to take it down to the moral crap? Oh, bad, good, bad, good. We're not dogs. We're human beings. Everybody is flawed. All right? And why can't we just appreciate that difference in each other? My God. I mean, there's authority figures in law enforcement, in politics, in medicine, in religion, that are some of the worst evil people walking the earth. And do I judge them? Yes. In my poetry. I don't necessarily go out of my way. I don't have the time for that. So how do you do all of that as a, as a troubled individual from all of these different quarters? Addiction, alcoholism, domestic abuse, and then that. You have to cut the string off from all of them and make your own life. You can't connect yeah. yourself to that anymore. You have to be an individual in the world and you have to reinvent yourself and reinvent your family. Say goodbye to them as much as it hurts. And I love my alcoholic addiction, brothers and sisters. God, I love them. But there came a time when I said, no, I'm going to create new brothers, new sisters, new family. And guess where my family was when I found some, when I found the healthiest family I found? Guess where? In the forest. When I was traveling and I met a bear, I sat there and stared at the damn bear. And the bear looked at me with the eyes of a mother. And I felt mother's love through the bear's look. And I knew that I was loved. I mean, he may have wanted to eat me. That's how come he loves me. But he still showed love in those eyes. And so I began to realize that I had mothers and fathers all over the world. Didn't have to come in, in these two people who were shooting up heroin every night. Question. Um, the next person we were going to have a question from was Delissa. Hi, my name is Delisa Begay. Hey, Delisa. Um, yeah. Hey, hey, Jimmy, I've read your books from way back when um, and just really wanted to mention again that your memoir, Place to Stand, was a really just a great book. Sometimes I've taken excerpts to use um, when when sharing with my students and looking at details and sensory type of writing. Um, and, and just to know, like, there are a lot of heavy topics and, and emotional uh, things that you one goes through, I think, when starting to kind of look back at their early life, especially in time of childhood. Um, and I'm just wondering, as you, you've written several memoirs or a couple of books, and of course your poetry too, but do you find um, that it is, is it like an emotional kind of, you know, like, uh, is it trying? Does it wear on you emotionally? And I was just kind of curious too, like after writing, going through that process, um, is there this sense of like, this is who I am? Like in terms of, I don't, I don't know if it's a, an accomplishment, but more of just like, almost like a confidence, not arrogance, but acceptance, I guess, oh, of who that's beautiful, Delisa. That's that's exactly how I feel when I'm when I've, I've 
I've got a life as a poet. I got offered jobs at three universities, uh, tenures, really nice jobs. And I had to look at my kids' uh, torn up sneakers and lack of health insurance and stuff. And my own kids, my own children, all five of them said, no. They said, uh, keep writing poetry, Bobby. I said, yeah, but they'll give me health insurance. I got a nice car on campus. I have my own office. They said, no, 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 keep writing poetry. We when you're writing poetry, it's like you're alive in the world. And then when you when you put on a suit and you go to Yale like I did, I taught at Yale for a while and I taught at Berkeley, you're not the same guy. You're like, you know, no, and we want you, there's not too many people sitting home for the last 55 years who have become, who have lived in poverty, who, who, who have decided only to be writers. You know, it seemed like there was a time when only rich white people could be writers. I, I was determined to, to prove that wrong. Starting in 1972, I said, I'm going to write until I die and make a living at it. How many Native Americans or people of color, Asians, Chicanos and stuff, do you know that said, no, I'm going to prove to the world that I could be a poet and, 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 and survived and only write poetry the rest of my life? I've done it. But I had to jump to movies. I had to jump to all other stuff. But but you know what? Yeah, there's a sense at the end of the day, not of arrogance, but of gratitude. Just thank you so much uh, for taking care of me, the creator, you know? Thank you so much. Hey, Delisa, that was really a cool comment. What else? Real quick. One yeah, more. And then, yeah. Uh, let's see. Our next question was Jeff Knorr. Hello, Jeff. Hi, hi, Jimmy. This is Jeff Knorr from Sacramento City College. Hey, Jeff. How you doing? I love Sacramento up there, buddy. I love it. It's well, we're gonna get you up there. Uh, hey, I, I was I'm gonna ask a, a question for my students, you know, because I've told you we read a place to stand. And we we've been talking about this uh, theme of hope and keeping hope alive. And and they really wondered if it was the power of language or a more innate sense of spirituality that kind of kept you continually moving forward and reshaping. What a great question, Jeff. Hey, uh, you know, I was just thinking the, 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 the process of my writing when I write either poetry I, and before I end, I'll read a small, tiny little poem, but the process very quickly, the process of when I write, I feel as confused and, and under, the, uh, under the weight of so many injustices around me, uh, the kids down at the border in cages, the mothers being separated from them, uh, the men who I see on the street who are addicts and sleeping in the gutters, I feel so much in need of, of doing something about it. I feel like I'm just wandering in the ruination of this chaos where there's no hope. And then, and this is what each of us have. I sit down and I begin to write, say, 19, 1993, 94, when I came back from Los Angeles and decided I was not going to make any more movies, I'm going to come here. They offered me Scarface 2. They said, we want you to take Joe Mont uh, Tony Montana. Uh, he had an illegitimate child in Cuba. He comes back 
and he begins to take on all his father's, and then we want you to do blood and blood out too. I said, not right now, I need to leave. I left with a big check on the table. And when I came out of that world, all around me, I saw chaos. I, I couldn't hold on. There was nothing to hold on to. There was nothing to hope for. There was nothing. And then something happened. I sat down and I began to write. And then and then I come back and sit down the next morning at seven o'clock. I, I try to write five, four or five hours a day. I'd come back to the writing and I'd do a revision. And I would take this and put this up there. And then I would, I would, I would, I would move these sentences down here and take this paragraph, put it over here. And then I would say, Oh, yeah, and I remember her. I remember when Maria. Yeah, no, no. I remember when when Elaine came over and she helped me move into the apartment, but that's when my wife threw me out. And I was honest with her because I was having a couple of affairs. So I write that stuff in there. And then all of a sudden I put this here. And all of a sudden, I find myself creating this reality on the page that I can fit into and it makes me comfortable. It gives me hope. I'm actually creating out of the chaos this unique world that I experienced, that I existed in. I'm reinventing reality. I'm not taking that reality. I'm taking this one that I'm creating on the page, and it is really making me feel hopeful. So I've taken all these disparate apparatuses and tools and things that I have laying around on the sidelines, and I'm putting them all together to create a vision of my reality, my experience. And when I put that together correctly, it gives me so much hope. And I think we can do that with studies. I think we can do that with spirituality. I think we can do that with academia. I think we can do that with our day-to-day -day health. I mean, if we just start to put together little things like, okay, a walk around the block. Not this Oprah thing where I've got $700 billion, I can call my own trainers. No. Or I've got money to go to the gym. No. You know what? Just, just. Let's just try going around the park. And little by little, you begin to put yourself a lifestyle. The way I put the, my stories together, my poems together, you begin to put a lifestyle together in which at the center gives you hope because it makes sense. There's a symmetry. There's a wholeness to it, a fulsomeness that, that you're like, wow, it's that reality that you're getting your sustenance from. So try not to put too much of your, whatever your substance or whoever you are outside of you. Start putting more of it inside of you. Okay? That I will end with. And do me a favor, everybody. Look, if you want to sign up for my retreat, June the 18th, 19th, and 20th, it's going to be fantastic. It's a three-day writing retreat. And it's going to be held at the Museum of New Mexico. And you got the zoo, you got aquatic park, you got the best hotel, Chaco Hotel, you got the you got the uh, you got the sawmill market, you got the museum, you got old town shops, you got everything. So do me a favor, look, uh, the first the first five students that email Professor Lasseter will get five scholarships to attend the writers retreat. Okay, and the rest of you that don't make it, get on my Jimmy Santiago Baca site and see if you can register to get in. Okay, <laughs> it's in person and, and virtual, okay? That's awesome. Hey, uh, tell everybody in Sacramento, I said hi. And listen, everybody in Gallup, I'm not, I'm not just flattering you. 
I love you out there. I really, really love you. I know your history. I'm a history buff. I read a lot. And man, you guys are like, to me, you're like leaders of the world. So with that, I'm going to sign off. Antonio, you take over and listen to Antonio. Antonio you can even answer some of the questions if you'd like. But Professor Lasseter, thank you so much. And Lee, you're the best. Thank you, Jimmy. All okay. right. Yes. Uh, people can hear me. Um, my name is, is Antonio Salazar Hobson. I'm a Chicano. I've been a, um, a labor and tribal attorney for 30 years. I've represented tribes from California to the Sioux Nation. This reading is from my book, Antonio, We Know You, and it is entitled The Adobe Burial Grounds. I'm the 11th of 13 migrant children from Phoenix, born to Jesus and Petra Salazar. The Hobsons, a childless white couple, befriended my family. Sean and Sarah Hobsons were pedophiles. They kidnapped me at four and a half years of age and raised me in their pedophile communities in California. This vignette takes place in the first California home we hid in for years where the Hobsons abused me. It was a crumbling adobe house located in an orange orchard. I am five years old. The most visceral memory I have at the adobe house begins at my favorite orange tree. It was old growth, a mighty tree to me, with a massively large canopy. I used my canopy to make my own private room away from the Hobsons. It was a place where they never came out to visit me to my great contentment. Under that large canopy, I sought solace, not knowing what to do, but finding my mind and heart turned towards anything that would help me get in touch with my Salazar family. I would sit under the orange tree, and eventually I came up with the idea of collecting the spare and broken adobe bricks alongside my home to place under the tree. The adobe bricks were heavily weathered after decades of exposure, old and crumbling. I used these bricks in a way that would absorb most of my attention for the entire two plus years I lived in the Orange Grove. I started to form my collection of abandoned bricks into an arrangement that symbolized each member of my family. I missed my family so intensely that I wanted to have a way to regularly visit and to talk to them, to let them know I was still alive, that I missed them, and I would be coming back. As I began what would eventually form in my head as a burial yard, the inspiration to do so came from some unknown place and quickly took over my imagination. It provided an immense balm to my desperate child's mind, a bruised but never lost identity with a terribly damaged psyche. I made sure that I had enough bricks for each family member, 12 siblings and two parents. I would make holes in the ground deep enough to hold each thick brick. I would then richly bury each one after placing them in their graves using one or two inches of ground cover, then patting the earth down upon them and in the day. I initially buried them in a haphazard pattern. When I returned to the tree the next day, I began the process all over again. It was deeply reassuring to me and quickly developed into a compulsion. I could never halt this endless cycle of burial and reburial. As my burial imagination evolved, I realized I needed to organize the actual burial ground a little better. Suddenly it became clear to me that my brothers needed to be buried as a group, my sisters in their own group, with each of my parents having their own place. I was psychologically compelled to engage in the reburial of my family every day, a ritual that both soothed and connected me daily with my lost Salazar family. Once I realized the need for better reorganization, I experienced an unexpected calmness in my mind. 
I was no longer so overcome with my daily anxiety about the placement for each of my family members. I went ahead with the burial ground for Petro at the top of my family, only grudgingly giving my despised father, Jesus, a place next to her. But somehow I knew that I had no choice but to do so. I never told the Hobsons about my burial yard, my daily unearthing and reburial, or that I talked with my family through these adobe bricks. It was not until we left the adobe house to move to a house in an isolated olive orchard that I was forced or able to end these efforts. I never repeated the burial again for my family after we moved. I missed my burial grounds, but I had found out about our move with a few days' notice. I used the extra time to make sure my burial grounds would be safe when I left. I believe I had taken care of my family, and I willed myself to endure until the time I could return to them. I never considered a burial ground for myself because I believed I would soon be returning to my mother's embrace. Thank you. Thank you so much. We got a bonus reading today. Uh, so we're hopeful that you enjoyed that and are, we're actually very grateful if we had so much attendance today, we had so many extra speakers and we thank all of you for your attendance. Um, I will stop uh, talking so that Lee Lamb can conduct our, our raffle for today. Lee? Yeah, thank you all for attending today's uh, presentation with Jimmy. And I uh, went on Google and randomly generated two numbers and lined that up with our attendee list. And the two winners of our $100 UNM Gallup uh, gift store baskets are Merrill Lieberman and Tracy Thompson. So congratulations to uh, both of you. And um, I will uh, get these gift baskets to you if you... Um, would like to pick them up this week or early next week, I'll reach out to you both. Congratulations and thank you for coming today. Thanks again so much to everyone who joined us today from near and far. Please check out our UNM Gallup website, see all the wonderful events we do, uh, all of the wonderful faculty we have, and most how great our students are. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful evening.